We are memories strung on storylines, the tales we tell ourselves about ourselves, falling through our lives into tomorrow. Mark Lawrence. Welcome, 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 ladies and gentlemen. It is another episode of Felonious Pundits. I am Kintad Svensgaard, and along with me, please say hello to Mr. AJ Mass. Who are you? What are you doing here? Who am I? What's going on? What is this? I don't remember anything. It's like you're a blank slate, AJ. A uh, tabula rasa, if you will. <laughs> yuck, yuck. <laughs> yes, indeed, folks. This is a podcast about the television program Criminal Minds. Each week we recap and take an in-depth look at an episode of the show. I have never seen this show before, so I will be giving you the perspective of a first-watch viewer. And AJ is our grizzled veteran who has seen each and every episode plenty of times. And that's the perspective he'll be bringing to you. And this week, AJ, we are at the penultimate episode of season three. We are talking about season three, episode 19 of Criminal Minds, entitled Tabula Rasa. And this episode was written by Dan Dworkin and Jay Beatty, and it was directed by Steve Boyum. It originally aired on May 14th, 2008. 14 years ago. <laughs> A short while ago. And uh, yeah, so let's just get into it. We start off this week in Roanoke, Virginia, and the Chiron helpfully tells us that it's 2004. So we're starting out around four years prior to the actual time period of, of our episode. And uh, we see an FBI SWAT team converging in on an apartment building. And one of the first people we see is our boy Morgan, who is clearly four years younger because he's wearing a backwards baseball cap. <laughs> <laughs> and Hotch looks pretty much basically the same. <laughs> Hotch has always looked the same, yes. <laughs> And so uh, they're storming up through an apartment building and they uh, go to an apartment. They reach it after scaring the heck out of somebody that was just coming out of his house. To <laughs> that was a, some big bum fuzzled big man jogger, man. <laughs> he walks yeah. out. He doesn't even say anything. And Morgan like kind of pats him like, shh, don't say anything. <laughs> but big man was going out for a jog. I mean, I think Big Man was just about to go back in his apartment and have to take care of some uh, cleanup duties, to be honest with you, because, well, that's a sight to see. Yeah. And then you're glad when they're not there for you, not that you did anything, but you just feel guilty for no reason all of a sudden. Or at least that's how I would feel, AJ. Anyway. <laughs> I just don't know if I'd be quiet. I would have gone, wow! <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, they stand outside of an apartment door and they start yelling. Hot starts yelling for someone named Brian Matloff to open up. They've got a warrant for his arrest. They burst into the apartment. 
Morgan does not get to break down the door. I guess he didn't have those privileges at that point in time. Yeah, it was a, four, four years ago, man. You had to use the big clubby battering ram thing. Yes. They go into the apartment and start doing the whole clear, clear thing. Morgan goes into a room. Uh, he does take note of a, a dream catcher. And uh, also he sees an open window. So he runs over to the window and Matloff is out there. And he's trying to make his escape by heading up the fire escape toward the roof of the building. So then Morgan starts chasing him and he goes up there and Matloff is running and he's reached the edge of the roof and realizes that his only hope is to jump from the roof of one building to the roof of another building. And he discovers pretty quickly that he's no action hero. He just barely makes it. He actually does make it to the other side, but he only catches the ledge and is hanging on there and straining, trying to pull himself up. He can't pull himself up. Morgan, of course, sees this and is like, hold on, I got you. And of course, does like a Superman leap, <laughs> you know, because he's Morgan, even though Hotch has come up and is yelling at him to stop. He's going to okay. run across. Yeah, this is a dumb ass choice. <laughs> yes. I get Morgan's impulse to want to like, you know, save a man's life. Even an unsub. I, I get that. But man, Morgan saw how precarious his jump was. And I know Morgan's full of uh, machismo and knows that he's got more athletic ability than this guy. But he jumps and skids and slides. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's a broken ankle involved there <laughs> if this were real that, that, yeah. that landing did not look good it did not it looked painful but he bounces up right away to go make a grab at matloff but he is just seconds too late as matloff loses his grip and he falls hans gruber style about four <laughs> stories down to the ground hey i got the same exact note my friend <laughs> <laughs> And uh, as he's falling, we do see him flashing back in his mind. We see some images. We see like a waterfall. We see graduation caps being tossed in the air, a birthday party, and a, a w woman looking at him in a crib. So it's like his whole life is flashing before his eyes, but it's going in reverse. Well, he's falling backwards, so the memories have to flow backwards. I mean, it makes perfect <laughs> sense to me. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Memo to myself when I want my life to flash before my eyes run forwards. <laughs> God. And so the man falls and he is not in good shape. The cops surround his broken body in the alley between the buildings are, and are quite surprised to discover he's still alive. But the way this one cop that's there that has nothing to do with the rest of the story... The way he figures, it's not going to be for long. Yeah, not for long. <laughs> and then goodbye to that character. They could have gotten Michael Ironside to play this cop. <laughs> That's I don't we'll, we'll see this cop again for one. And there's another flashback with him, but but yeah, he's not important. I'll grant you that. So next, we cut over to the BAU office, and we also cut to the present time, and we have a quick little scene of Garcia and Reed and they're making fun of a picture of Prentice from back in the eighties. And I'll just say Prentice had a very, a goth look 
She had the big blown out black hair, heavy black mascara, blue lipstick. Morrissey is her hero. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Winona Ryder, Beetlejuice vibes, that kind of thing, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I I, I like this exchange because, again, it's it's good character development. And like the fact that Reed gets to make fun of someone <laughs> is, right. always, is always a good thing. Uh, what, what strikes me as, as pretty uh, ironic is that Emily con- is convinced that they've done some Photoshop to the, to the picture because she yeah. doesn't remember ever looking this way, even though it's from her high school yearbook. <laughs> Come on, Emily. Just, yeah. She apparently has blocked this memory out of her life completely. But meanwhile, after all these little hijinks, Hutch comes over and he's just gotten a call and he lets them know it's about Brian Matloff, who Reed remembers as the Blue Ridge Strangler. Morgan is like, oh, yeah, right. Like four years ago, three victims out in the Blue Ridge Parkway. However, this guy was never convicted because he went into a coma before he could be tried. And Hotch is like, well, guess what, y'all? We're going to get our chance now because he is out of the coma. He's wide awake. (laughs) (laughs) So we next go over to the hospital where Hotch is meeting up with the prosecutor of the case. And he is on a first name basis with her. Her name is Cece Hillenbrand. And she's all gung ho about continuing the case, AJ. She's uh, ready to do it. And Hotch is like, well, I'll, I'll gladly testify for you. But I do want to point out that, you know, the circumstances around a case can change after four years of time. Case in point, for example, Matloff's doctor comes over and lets them know that Mr. Matloff has amnesia and he can't tell them anything about the murderers. He doesn't even remember his own name. And we go to credits. Criminal minds, criminal minds, criminal minds, criminal minds. It's criminal. We come back from credits and we see a guard. She's taking Matloff, who is in a wheelchair, to his cell. He is he's he's looking kind of mystified or, or scared of his situation. And Hotch gives us our opening quote. All changes, even the most longed for, have their melancholy. For what we leave behind us is a part of ourselves. We must die to one life before we can enter another. Anatole France. Okay, it's a little wordy. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, I I like the uh, kind of Dutch angles they're doing here to represent the fact that this poor guy, and yes, unsub or not, this particular version of this guy clearly has no idea what he's what's happening to him, and he's just being wheeled into into jail, and he doesn't even know his name. Like that's that's harsh, yeah. Kafka esque, one might say. <laughs> Hutch and Rossi are looking at the pictures and the case files in Cece's office, and Cece is on the phone. Apparently, they're talking about how Matloff had a type. His victims were brunette. They were young joggers who were out running. So they have that in common. Cece happens to get off the phone right then. She's got some bad news. They had a key witness in this case, AJ, but that witness died two years ago. Hotch asks if it was an, of an overdose, and she's like, yeah, because Hotch remembered that this guy uh, was an addict. Unfortunately, this guy had their only solid, solid info that Matt Loff was at the park with Darcy Corbett, who was the third victim. And besides this guy, their witness, 
all the other evidence that they had was circumstantial. Hotch decides he's going to help Cece prepare her case because remember, Hotch is a lawyer himself, so he got them skills. He got them skills. He knows that legal stuff. And, and, and he's been down this rodeo before. That's why, you know, Boston invites him in to help on cases and consult. Because that's what they do at the BAU, right? <laughs> exactly. I, I think. <laughs> I don't always know it, but that's what they do. So, yeah, Hotch is going to help CC prepare. And then Rossi is going to go over uh, the case with the rest of the team. So CC thanks them. By the way, I can't tell you how much I just like saying Cece. The name Cece is fun to say. Anyway. Pick up that guitar and talk to me. <laughs> Cece thanks them and Hot says, well, we're not just doing it for you. Just so you know, we're doing it for them. And he's looking down at the pictures of the victims. And that allows us to travel by Kodak. No, not only through space, but through time. As we go back to 2004 and the crime scene of the original case as the, a local detective there greets Hotch and Morgan. And also as Hotch introduces their newest colleague, Dr. Reed. And after the detective gives Reed the typical, you seem like a little young and Reed gives him the typical, I don't know, gobbledygook about neural processing speeds. <laughs> Time is just a construct of the brain. <laughs> We're all technically the same age in terms of the metaphorical geodesic universe. Of the... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Reed's going to read. Yeah. Even on his first time, he helps to analyze the scene because Hotch asks him what he sees. Part of my mind is wondering where Mandy Patinkin is. They're going <laughs> to have a flashback, but... I don't say anything. Like he was he was he wasn't working that day, that case. Or at least Rossi's not there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at least they kept it a little uh, accurate. So yeah, Reed says, well, the, the lig ligature marks on the body match the other victims, and he's clearly strangled them all with a belt. It, it must be this guy's signature. And there are some tan line tan lines on the wrist, which mean there's a missing watch. So this guy is taking trophies. And he buries the bodies face down. Reed says that's probably a sign of remorse. He can't bear looking at them in the face. They figure that he's picking up these women who happen to be in the wrong place at the right time. And I, I always thought it would be the wrong place at the wrong time. But I get what he's trying to say here. Look, let's not try to Dr. John this sucker. <laughs> <laughs> Out of was the right place. Must have been the it's, wrong time. It's Dr. Reed, not Dr. John. Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, the distraught father of the victim is arriving at the scene, and the local detective wants to play some Rochambeau in order to figure out who gets to talk to him. But Reed actually uh, volunteers and wants to talk to him. So he goes over to the man and he asks, is it his daughter? And Reed says, you know, it might be. But look, you really don't want to see this. You don't want to see her. You don't want this memory stuck in your head. And I thought at Reed was uh, actually very good with the father here. Especially for his first day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the camera pans over and we see the same waterfall that we saw in Matloff's flashback. So... So, so a nice little way of telegraphing to us that this is indeed the guy. Yeah, they got the right guy. It must have been the wrong time. 
So next we come back to the uh, BAU office and back to the year 2008. And Morgan and Reed are bringing Prentice and JJ up to date on the case. They discovered that Matloff was into Native American mythology, which could explain why the bodies were buried face down. As some Native American beliefs say that burying the bodies face down traps the soul and prevents it from haunting the killer. And uh, they also thought that it was possible that there could have been earlier victims. Matloff worked for the Blue Ridge Parkway for the Forest Service. And JJ does note that he was Polish Catholic. So she's wondering what led him to identify with the Native American culture. And basically, they never got that far in the case to find out. So they don't have an answer to that question. They also mentioned that there was no physical evidence at all to tie this guy to the crimes. They did not find the trophies, the jewelry he took at the uh, anything that he took at his apartment. And Hotch comes in and tells them, well, we need to figure it out because guess what? Our witness is dead. and He was the only one that could put Matloff at the scene. And Dr. Reed looks thoughtful and says, well, there could be another way. You know, not for nothing, but Spencer's probably been working on this subtly in the background of his brain for the past four years. <laughs> it's, just, it's just something like, hmm, brain, memory. Hmm, hmm, hmm. I know. <laughs> so we cut to the courtroom and CC is asking the judge to allow them to put Matloff through a process called brain fingerprinting. Uh, which could indicate memories of the crimes are present in the mind of the defendant, regardless of whether or not he could recall them. And the defense attorney starts to argue over the whole science of it. They get Hotch to talk about it, and he explains that it's a non-invasive procedure and very safe. Basically, they're just going to hook up an EEG to this guy's brain and show him a lot of stimuli, various pictures, and measure the brain waves. The defense objects again, but all of a sudden, Matloff says, hey, guess what? I want to do this. If I can re- remember, if this can help me remember, I need to do it. And his lawyer is trying to talk him out of it, but he says, no, he has to do it. We go to outside of the courtroom, and uh, Reed comes across Mr. Corbett, who is the third victim's father, Darcy, that we met before. And he comes over to Reed and basically wants to know if the amnesia thing is real. And he's really anxious for this case to work out. He's he's hoping for closure. He seems quite uptight, as you might imagine someone in this situation would seem to be. And, uh, you know, he sort of goes on after Reed asks about his wife. He admits that he split from his wife and he blames himself for the way he's acted since he. He's lost his daughter and, and Rita's kind of like, hey, you know, this is the kind of thing that can happen. Mr. Corbett is like, yeah, well, you know, I know that everything is going to be OK now, meaning now that they finally got this guy to trial. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough there with uh, with all the uh, uh, <sighs> the lack of closure. And it's not even, you know, it's like he's been put in a holding pattern, you know, just like uh, this guy was in a coma. And not in touch with the real world. Well, here, here, Darcy's dad is sitting there going, "Ah, I want it to be over. I want it to be over. And it's never over. And uh, 
a, a fine performance by Darcy's dad in this episode. Yeah. Uh, a Good man used to playing the dad. <laughs> it's James A. Cow says the dad. <laughs> yeah, I guess I've, I mean, I kind of recognized him and I was hoping that would be one of my, um, I'm not giving you a softball like 90210 daddy. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Walsh. Yes. And Uh, another member to our 90210 regulars list. Thank you very much. Boom, boom. Chalk it up, baby. Yep. We go next to the room where Hotch is overseeing the procedure for Matt Loft. Well, he's not doing it. When I say overseeing, he's just standing in the room. Uh, while this is going on and then uh matt loff is like do you have do you know who i am i mean do you really think it's me and and uh hotch lets him know he doesn't have any doubts about who he is and what he is he leaves the room so they can start the procedure and uh they have the eeg hooked up and they start scanning his brain waves and they start showing him pictures of the victims and the various crime scenes Cece and Hotch are actually looking in from a window outside the room. And from the brief flashes we get of the brain scans, I'm no medical technician, but it doesn't look like there's any big deviation like going wild when the uh, when he's seeing the, the pictures and when the slides change. To me, Matt Loft seemed pretty calm through the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, it almost looks like it wasn't connected at all, if you want to be honest. But I guess they're trying to visually represent tabula rasa. He has no memories. So they can't even pick anything up on the radar, I guess. Yeah. Meanwhile, Hotch gets a call from JJ, and she happens to be at the hospital, and she's letting Hotch know that it turns out that Matloff had a regular visitor that would come every six months while he was there. The name of this visitor was Nina Moore, and Hotch tells JJ to track her down. And then we cut over to the lab technician talking to Hotch and Cece and telling them that there are no indications that this guy has remembered anything. So Hotch and Cece are like, either he really doesn't remember or else they have the wrong guy altogether. That was a great little twist, a little, little nice job of the writing there. Because it isn't just, oh, well, I guess he really doesn't remember. I guess he really isn't faking. Yeah, but we might not have the right guy if that's the case. So I think that's a really nice uh, way to throw a little bit of uncertainty into it. Uh, even if they've kind of already tipped their hand by showing us that he had the memories when he was falling off the roof. So, right. <laughs> So uh, next we go back to the police station and Hotch is saying that the brain fingerprinting results may actually help Matloff's case. And Rossi is basically, that's why I distrust all technology. (laughs) And then they have um, a pretty interesting discussion here about if he has no memory, does that make him a different person altogether? And Reed talks about the concept of the psychological connection to the past, which plays a role in defining who we are. And Prentice says, well, you know, one person, one could argue that in his current condition, he's no longer any kind of a danger to society. And Rossi's like, yeah, well, not until he gets his memory back. And uh, Morgan says, look, it's not about him being a danger or not. 
It's about making sure someone pays for what happened to those girls. And Hotch is like, well, it's not for us to decide what his punishment should be. It's up for up to the courts. And uh, he asks uh, JJ about Matloff's visitor. JJ and Princess had talked to 71 Nina Moores in the area. As far as they could tell, no one was connected. They None of them admitted to coming to visit uh, Matloff. They think whoever it was that was coming over there must feel connected to him. And maybe that person knows the truth of what happened. So Hotch says, you know what? Let's go back to the hospital and interview the staff because we need to build a profile and help find this woman. Yeah, I mean, two things. First of all, the discussion uh, that they had was really cool. They're just different people with different points of view. If you're no longer remember the things you did, are you comfortable? I, I love the fact that Emily is the one who kind of is on board with this, which makes that first scene with the high school photo at least relevant to the case at hand. She doesn't remember uh, being that goth girl, and she's not that goth girl anymore. Like the, If she remembered it, would she be different? Like Obviously, none of us are the same people we were when we were younger. We still remember, <laughs> uh, and it, it probably did. Obviously, it impacted who she became. But the fact that she has no memory of it, what, what, you know, what does that say about her? Is she is she, has she changed that much that even the memories don't fit her anymore? So that's, it's just an interesting kind of moral dilemma. I, I also just like the fact when they get to the second part of the conversation about trying to find Nina. Uh, it's just like Hotch is like, well, you know, nobody visits nobody visits a coma patient, uh, you know, without a connection. And Mark's like, yeah, a triple murder a coma patient. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Morgan um, just doesn't let stuff go. <laughs> he does not. He, but it was just his nice Morgan. little side under his breath. Yeah, yeah, triple murder. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So next we cut to see flashes of the victims, both alive and dead. And they're staring at the camera and we hear a little screaming in the background. And we see Matloff waking up like maybe he's just dreamed this. Maybe he's having some memories returned to him. And, and the, the cool thing about this is that is he having memories or is he just remembering the images that they just showed him? Is he just having a dream based on the fact that he has no memories, but the only memories he does have is what he just experienced, which is these images. So this isn't right. a tell. It's, it, yeah, I think it's just a nice, a nice little fascinating. Again, it, they shouldn't have shown us the waterfall. At, 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 the, at the very beginning scene in the flashback, they should have showed us the waterfall because that tells us he's the unsub. But, you know, not knowing, I think it's pretty, kind of cool. Yeah, they could have just did the Hans Gruber all the way down and we kind of don't know. Uh, that would have been interesting. But anyway, the uh, guard from before, I guess he's got one guard that's always assigned to him because it's the same guard. And she comes by and she asks if he's all right. And uh, he tells her he was dreaming and he supposes that he must be anxious for the trial. And she asks him about the uh, brain thingy and how did that go? And, you know, it's, it's like, it's fine, but it, I don't know if it worked. And then he asks her for something to write with and a piece of paper. And she's like, oh, I, I guess I can do that. So th this relationship is very interesting that he's got going with this guard here. They, they seem to trust one another. She seems to feel more sorry for him than 
a, yeah, I mean, well, the I relationship just, has gone that that direction. For everything that she knows about him is that he seems to be a sweet guy who's just a little bit lost. So yeah, it's 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 a tough situation, and you know she's but she she recognizes that he might be a killer because <laughs> I, I, the way she asked the question is like, well, you passed that test. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like it's kind of comforting, but also at the same time, it's like you, like you did pass that test. <laughs> right. You ain't gonna kill me, right? <laughs> he does actually smell something, and he asks her what it is, and apparently it's popcorn. And he's like, "Hmm, do I like popcorn?" <laughs> Thought that was nice. He he doesn't even remember what he likes, or he doesn't like food wise. I thought that was interesting too. Next week. Cut to the courtroom and we get a sort of a montage of the prosecution and the defense's opening statements. Uh, and while those are going on, we see JJ and Prentice trying to get information at the hospital. We see the guard escorting Matloff out of the prison van in the parking lot. Uh, we can see Hotch assisting Cece with her statement, getting it ready. And then as she's saying it, you know, it cuts back to her actually saying it in the courtroom. Then we see the defense saying that the prosecution has no evidence and that the only way they can tie his client to these crimes is through the pseudoscience they call profiling. And he might as well have done finger quotes the way he said profiling. <laughs> and then we cut back to the guard who is walking Matloff to the court building. From a camera viewpoint a little bit further back, we see sitting sitting over by a parked car. Behind them, there's Mr. Corbett, and he's watching the guard and Matloff, watching this routine of them getting out of the truck, I mean, out of the uh, van and, and going up to the building. And then we see uh, Cece in the courtroom. She's questioning Hotch on the stand, and he explains how and why they came up with Matloff as the suspect. A lot of the usual profiling type of uh, information gets said here. And, but uh, it's almost as if Hotch and the whole BAU is on trial here because, and I don't yeah. blame the defense for doing this. Obviously, you know, you defend your client to the best of your ability. And if you can poo-poo the, the science, then you go for it. Um, so, yeah, it's like, hey, Hotch, you're, you're basically the only witness at this point. <laughs> right. So we got to go hard at you. Yeah. Please be good on the stand, Mr. Hotch. We uh, then have... Hotch explaining how they came up with Matloff as a suspect. And we flash back to Reed, Morgan, and Hotch working out the details of the case. Morgan and Reed do look four years younger to me. But for some reason, Hotch just, like I said before, still just still looks the same. You know, um, it's also, it's a memory. So who knows what we should believe. <laughs> That's true. True. So... They're going through the usual profiling. Hotch is explaining it. They figured out that this guy must have worked for the Forest Service. And they actually had 1,700 employees. So they had to figure out a way to narrow it down. And the way they narrowed it down was they figured out this was a guy who was into control. And he probably would insert himself into the investigation because he wanted to control things. At this point, we see the first interaction with Garcia. Uh, Morgan asks what the that new tech analyst's name is, and, and Reed says he thinks it's Gomez. And so Morgan is like, hey, Gomez, Gomez. 
she doesn't say anything, doesn't turn around. And uh, then he says, hey, baby girl. <laughs> and of course, that gets Garcia to turn around. A special relationship is born at this moment. Her first baby girl. And he seems to be worried that he might have offended her. But actually, she does not seem offended at all. And anyway, they ask her to check for the names of the any forestry employees uh, against the police witness list. And only one name came up out of the all 1,700 employees. And that name was Brian Madloff. Yeah, so I like this flashback. Of Obviously, it's great to see the origin story of Baby Girl. It's delightful. Uh, I have a few issues with the scene, though. <laughs> Do tell. There is no way... Well, there's no way Reed would go, I think her name is Gomez. That's right. I thought the same thing. He, he he's got a... Look, I know his memory is eidetic, which means that he has to have heard it or read it. So where would he have come up? <laughs> like, maybe... He he didn't he he knew there was a Gomez around or something. Uh, he I, he wouldn't have got it wrong. He he knows he doesn't like it's, it. It doesn't work. Um, and I'm just saying, I think it's Gomez is a little racist. Yes, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> Not that looking at her again because she doesn't look she don't look like a Garcia. Trust me, <laughs> Miami girl. Uh, but I, yeah, it's perfect memory. So he he knows he doesn't. Uh, I also want you to remember this. Put a pin in this. Put a pin in this entire episode, but especially with the flashbacks and everything, but especially this this moment here, because clearly this is the first time they've ever met, right? Yes. You could see that. Who's that new analyst? What's her name? Yeah. Okay. Keep that in mind. <laughs> Pinned. Oh, boy. Uh, I, I, I smell continuity errors in the air. We cut to uh, Rossi, and he's in his office talking to Reed on the phone, saying, of course it went well, meaning the trial, because he taught Hotch everything he knows about giving testimony. Uh, that was kind of, a, kind of a brag there for uh, Rossi. And as he hangs up talking well, with Reed, Prentice and JJ walk into his office and he asks them what they found at the hospital. And they found out that the lady who visited Matloff was in her late forties to mid fifties. She was quiet. She had a nervous demeanor. Um, the first time she came to visit, she didn't even make it into the room. She just stood in the doorway and watched for a few minutes, then left. And then on later visits, she would sit with him and read to him and then she would also ask the nurses about his condition. She appeared to be very concerned with his pain. Rossi thinks this sounds quite maternal. And JJ and Prentice thought the same. And so they did some digging and found out that Matloff, uh, basically Matloff was adopted. They think that the woman that's been visiting may be her birth mother because her description was brunette, brown eyes, dark complexion maybe Hispanic or Mediterranean. And Rossi says, ah, what about Native American? And uh, they go, oh yeah, that would probably explain his interest in the culture. So now we have a, a reason for that. 
Yeah, and and uh, again, whereas in the last scene I said that's racist, this is not racist. They are looking for a Native American tie-in, so I'm okay with the. She's vaguely ethnic. <laughs> okay, sure, we can let's let's insert our what we know about him into it. So I, I'm okay with this one, Rossi. For now, for now, <laughs> for now. So we uh, cut back to the courtroom, and the defense attorney is questioning Hotch. And he is talking about the fact that he called the defendant running from the police a strong indicator of his guilt. And the defense attorney is like, guess what? Uh, It's just as likely that he was running because of another warrant that he happened to have out for his arrest due to an auto accident. Do do you think that's possible? And Hart starts to say, well, you know. Of the eight people that, and the, the defense attorney does the whole, hey, yes or no, is it possible? And so Hotch does admit that it is possible. Sure. Hey, again, good defense attorney. I, I, as much as most of the time, I think defense attorneys are portrayed as complete asses, unless, of course, you know, our hero is the one on trial. Right. <laughs> hey, hey, valid. Isn't it possible? Yes, it's possible. Thank you. No further questions. Exactly. That's really what he should say at that point. <laughs> <laughs> so then we cut over to Garcia's office. She's on the phone trying to get Matt Loft's adoption records. And she's threatening this lady who's not being helpful that she's going to get a court order. And JJ happens to come in at that point. And she's like, hey, we don't have any time for court orders. So Garcia just tells the woman on the phone. She's done being nice. Uh, you see your cursor moving on your computer. Yeah, that's me. I've hacked into your computer. And she's basically grabbed the info she needs, whatever file she needs. And she tells this woman, since she was so grumpy, she's going to also send her boss those Jamaican vacation photos and starts clicking on them and talking about that. And uh, I was just like, damn, Garcia, (laughs) she she didn't play. She didn't have any time. So she did what she had to do. Uh, I actually, as much as I, I, come on, Garcia, this this, this is just blatantly illegal. Yeah. (laughs) Let's start with that. But I will say I like the little extra blackmail flair, but I wish it would have been just done a little bit differently. It was like, oh, and you see these Jamaican photos? I, I Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I won't be sending to your boss if you drop this right now. Right. <laughs> you don't mention what I do, and I won't mention what you did. Like, that would have been funnier for me. And at least then she could have gotten tacit uh, approval. <laughs> Let's just say you gave me permission, right? <laughs> right. But whatever, she's got the file. She has the information she needs. Apparently, Nina Genesee married in 1978. She changed her last name to Moore. She's currently residing in Madison Heights, Virginia. And JJ is saying Madison Heights. And she's going through her records and she says, oh, no, I, I talked to this woman. She said she wasn't the one. She'd never even been to Roanoke. And they go, well, why would she lie? And JJ says, and why hasn't she tried to see him since he woke up? Both very good questions. I hope they answer them. (laughs) So we go back to the court again. Our defense attorney is going hard at Hotch. He's uh, also going hard at the whole idea of behavior, behavior analytics. And he brings up all sorts of cases that went wrong that had profiles so to speak first and foremost he brings up richard jewell and the olympic bombings and uh didn't their profile lead directly to him 
And Hotch is like, yes. And they and they go, well, was he ever convicted of those bombings? And Hotch has to say, no, Jewel didn't do it. But hey, guess what? Our profile uh, was actually dead on of the real bomber, Eric Rudolph. But the attorney doesn't go into that. He brings up a few other cases of wrong profiles and says, isn't it possible that you were wrong about Brian Matloff? And Hotch says, no. And the attorney says, look, behavioral analysis is just intellectual guesswork. You probably couldn't tell me the color of my socks without any without with any greater accuracy than a carnival psychic. He's walking back towards his desk. And this might have been my favorite little scene in the show. Hotch does indeed tell him the color of his socks, charcoal gray, which, of course, is right. And Hotch then goes into super profiler mode and he's giving. He reads him to filth. Yeah. Oh, man. He spills his tea. He goes into all kinds of facts about this lawyer. The reason he's wearing those charcoal gray socks is he's matching the color to your suit so that it makes you appear taller. And you happen to be wearing lifts. And also, you're having financial difficulties. You're wearing that fake-ass Rolex because you pawned the real one to pay your debts. Oh, what kind of debts? How about gambling debts? How about a bookie? <laughs> Looks like your vice is horse racing. Because your Blackberry's been buzzing every 20 minutes, which happens to be the average time between posts from Colonial Downs. And he's getting the race results, and it's affecting his mood in the court. And He's apparently not having a very good day. Because he picks his horses like he practices law by always taking a long shot. I was like, damn, Hotch. <laughs> and Hotch, this is the best part. The results from the fifth race should be coming in any minute. And the guy's Blackberry starts rumbling. And uh, Hotch is all, yeah, uh, want to tell us if, if your luck has changed? And the lawyer like starts to look at it. But then he starts to look at the judge like, hey, come on. And the judge doesn't have any sympathy for him. You know, he opened this line of question and he went there. And so the lawyer's kind of stuck there and he just says, you know what? Nothing further, Your Honor. That's, I'm not yeah, gonna... a nice, nice, funny exchange to the judge. Say, hey, either show us your BlackBerry, yeah, <laughs> prove him wrong, or cut him loose. Nothing further, Your Honor. Oh, good choice. Yes, he says, I, 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 I do love this this entire exchange as well. It's just especially because this hot just pauses just long enough to make you think that he's not going to answer it at all. And then goes at him. But I also think it's, I mean, in addition to just Hotch being very good defender of what he does, the equally effective could have been just saying, yeah. And you know why you remember those three cases? Cause they're the only three times we were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like when we're, when we're wrong, it makes news because it doesn't happen that often. Uh, you know, he could have gone down that road as well, but you know this was equally as effective because it's you know obviously ain't nobody in that jury box gonna look at that defense attorney with respect the rest yeah. of the way. <laughs> Shots fired, but yeah, and they keep do cutting uh, frequently to to Darcy's father looking very uncomfortable because he just sees the case falling apart. And then we go back outside the courtroom, and Reed sees Mister Corbett. He starts to you know try to talk to him about it. Like he's going to try to set his mind at ease. But actually, Mr. Corbett seems his mood seems entirely different than the time before. He's like, oh, you know what? I've got a better, better understanding of things now. Uh, my therapist said I had to face the facts that there are some things in my life that I cannot control. And he says he realizes 
he can't control what goes on in that courtroom. And then he just says, uh, you know what? See you later, Spencer. Reed stands there looking kind of concerned at this whole exchange. And of course he should, because we cut to the parking lot where we see Mr. Corbett get in his car, go to his glove box and uh, pulls out a gun. And then we go to break. Yeah. And, and, and I know it's supposed to be a big reveal, but look, Dr. Reed, Dr. Reed, Dr. Reed, Dr. Reed. He said Spencer, you know, you just, your ears have to perk up because no one calls him Spencer and he hasn't called him Spencer. So just Spencer, what Spencer? Even Reed's looking at him like, <laughs> I don't go by Spencer. <laughs> uh, so obviously we see right then and there that, yeah, he's not in his right mind. He pulls out a handgun. Uh, yeah, come on. Yeah. That's, that, that's alarm bells going off. Four years later, oh, Dr. Reed. So good to see you, Dr. Reed. Oh, Dr. Reed. All right, see you later, Spencer, my boy. <laughs> my pal. Spencey Wednesday. <laughs> so we uh, come back from break and JJ and Rossi have gone to the house of Nina Moore. She opens the door. She gives a great big sigh when she sees that they're FBI agents and she lets them in and they start questioning her. And she's saying, you know, she never came forward before because she was protecting her family. She doesn't want her family knowing about that previous part of her life. She never wanted to have anything to do with this child she give, she gave up. She knows that sounds cruel, but that's just what the circumstances were, you know? She only saw this kid, this guy, once before the accident. She didn't get any kind of sense that he was a murderer, but the time that they met was before the murders, five years ago. He had called her out of the blue, and she thought the records were supposed to be sealed. He must have hired somebody to find her, and he just really wanted to just keep in touch with her, just kind of start a, a little bit of a relationship, but she just couldn't bring herself to do that. So she wound up rejecting him. She feels like whatever he became after that was probably her fault. JJ is like, no, don't, you know, it's not your fault. You don't, don't think that way. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because J- JJ, who we know is pregnant. <laughs> so she's feeling like, like, oh, yeah, I can understand how hard it must be for you to have given him up with like all this Things like I would, I could never dream of doing that. So that must have been a hard decision. She's very understandable. And Rossi's like, mm, "You rejected yeah, him." Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, JJ's go, "No, no, it's not your fault." <laughs> <laughs> You're not joining in here, Rossi. No, because it's her fault. Like you could just see it. Do- Rossi does not like this woman. Yeah. <laughs> so they ask her why she decided to visit him at the hospital. She says, "I, I guess it's because I felt safe." Uh, No one else had to know about it. And then all of a sudden, her husband comes home. So she has to go deal with him because now it's like the cat is out of the bag. The FBI is there. Yeah, and I'm glad I'm glad that this time he didn't like overhear something right <laughs> for JJ to what's gonna have to go. No, no, not two weeks in a row. <laughs> not two weeks in a row. <laughs> yes. So meanwhile, while she's gone to deal with her husband, Rossi and JJ talk about how she rejecting Brian must have been his stressor. She was just lucky that he took no for an answer. Could have been worse, JJ is saying, if he if he tried to press the issue. And Rossi says, you know what, maybe he did. And uh, so they go over to uh, Nina and they ask her if Brian ever sent her anything, any gifts. 
So we cut to her pulling a box out of a dresser and handing it to Rossi and JJ, saying she, she just couldn't throw them away. They look in the box and we don't see what it is, but I'm assuming it's well, too small a box to be Gwyneth Paltrow's head. Oh uh, yeah, you went. I was going to go with uh, Marcellus Wallace's golden okay. glow. Yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's his soul. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know if there was enough time for Nina to give her husband a full explanation of what was going on by the time Rossi and JJ went in there. But the look on his face when they walk in, one more question. He just, he, yeah. he's just so perturbed by them even being there. Like, like they ruined his life or something. It, it, weird reaction. I kind of get why she probably didn't want to tell this guy. He doesn't seem like a, seems like a yeah. jerk. Yeah. <laughs> So then we cut to creepy shots, how I phrased it, uh, of the three victims. And they're dead, but then they're not dead, AJ. They're coming back to life. And then they're staring and they're pleading. Yeah, I I said Brian has a gruesome zombie dream. (laughs) They're pleading with Brian. And we cut to uh, him in the van giving a start as he wakes up from this nightmare, although it looked like he was already awake. Some looked like maybe it was a waking nightmare or something. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't. A, a daydream. Yeah. A daydream. Let's go with daydream. Yeah. And uh, he's clearly remembering things, starting to remember things. And uh, the guard is there and she asks him if he's okay. And he says, yeah, he just didn't get any sleep. She pulls out some popcorn, <laughs> a little baggie. She says, you know, I'm not supposed to do this, but I wanted you to try this. He starts to try it. And meanwhile, she asks him if he's starting to remember. And he says, yeah, I think I'm starting to. We cut to them getting out of the van at the courthouse. And as they start to walk toward the building, we see Mr. Corbett walking on them quickly from behind. And he's reaching for his gun. But we know who's there to save the day. It is Reed. He stops Mr. Corbett, tells him he doesn't want to do this. Stop, but just give me the gun. Think about her. Think about what she'd want. And sure, he wants this guy to suffer, but guess what? He's going to be dead. He won't feel anything, and then you'll be in prison. You'll regret it. And he says, I'm already in prison. But then he thinks about it, and he lets Reed take his gun away. He asks Reed how he knew And Reed says his behavior, he was too calm, and he called him by his first name. And Mr. Corbett is like, if you're so good at predicting things, how come you couldn't stop him before he took my Darcy? And since he doesn't have an answer for that, he tells him, look, man, I shouldn't say anything, but there's some new evidence in this case. (laughs) Like, totally changing the subject there, Dr. Reed. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a a nice change of subject, but it's also like... Maybe they're like five minutes away from presenting this evidence. Yeah. So it's not like he's giving them a big alert the media kind of kind of thing. Like, just come into the courtroom. He, he, I'll sit with you in the courtroom. We'll watch. Trust me, you're going to like what you see. It's really like this thing. Yeah. So we go into the courtroom and Nina Moore is on the stand. And she's telling the story of how she gave Brian up for adoption. And how they didn't have a relationship for 37 years. And then he tracked her down, hoping to be part of her life. But she told him it was impossible. And she admits that turning him away was the hardest thing she ever had to do. 
but she says a person can't live two lives. And she's, she's looking at Brian as she says this and she says, I'm sorry, Brian. I'm so, so sorry. And Matloff is just there looking disturbed. And Cece asks if Brian made any attempts to communicate with her after that. And she says, well, just a few months later, she got something in the mail. No note, uh, just a postmark from Roanoke. And she knew that's where he lived. And in that envelope was a necklace. And then two months after that, she got another necklace. And after that, she got a watch. And she thought he was just trying to persuade her or something with the gifts. She didn't think anything really of it other than that. Cece puts the aforementioned items into evidence, shows the watch to uh, Nina with a picture of Darcy Corbett. And yes, that watch is indeed the same watch that Darcy was wearing in the picture. And Cece says, I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, this this is... I know it is this criminal minds. We were not a courtroom drama and everything, but this is one of the most <laughs> stupid TV court things I've ever seen. Like, first of all, Nina is not going to be the one to identify that this is the same watch in the picture. She could just state that. Like, because <laughs> like, Nina has never seen the picture. She doesn't know who this woman is. So he's like, is this, is this, and, and just show it to the jury. And you could see it's the same one. We've already entered this picture into evidence. Look, it's the same. It's the same. That, that That's fine. But for the judge to immediately go, court adjourned until 9 a.m. tomorrow for cross. Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. The defense would absolutely, A, have a chance to, to follow up immediately with that. They'd have, they would have already discussed this evidence coming in. Right. Uh, and they would have immediately gone into like him aligned across because there's no way that they're going to have Nina testify one morning for like an hour, court adjourned until tomorrow. <laughs> yes. No, she's going to finish her testimony today. <laughs> like, come on. This is just nonsense. Nonsense. <laughs> it is indeed. And so as Hotch is walking past the defendant's table, He looks down and there's a legal pad on the table with some notes on it. And he sees that there is a wet spot. Or dare I say, a tear? (laughs) A fresh tear stain on the paper, yes. (laughs) So he thinks about that. Then he goes outside to talk to Cece and he tells her he thinks that Brian is getting his memory back based just on that, that tear. And meanwhile, we see Matloff with his guard in a holding area, and she's taking off his cuffs. And then we cut back to Cece and Hotch still talking. And all of a sudden, they notice a bunch of guards and police running in the direction of the holding area. So Hotch follows after them. And we get to the holding room, but the guard is there with a bloody head, and Matloff is not there. She lets them know Matloff has her gun. Yeah, and I, I, from her standpoint, and I liked her character. I liked this guard's character. I thought she was very human, if nothing else. Uh, not, it's not like a throwaway part. Uh, you know, she, she uncuffs him because she has to. He has to change from his going to court nice suit to his uh, orange jumpsuit. So, you know, and they've done this day after day of the trial. So th- there's nothing unusual here. Uh, but it does go to show, I think, that he didn't, hurt her right 
Like, he didn't try to kill her or anything. He could have easily shot her or something. But blended no, her he, up a little, but... He, well, he, he had to get the gun from her, so, like, I get that, that but I don't think he did it maliciously. Right. Like, he, he he probably did genuinely like her. Yeah. Um, like, he, you know, his memories came back. He, the, the same thing that triggered him before has triggered him again. His mother basically rejected him in open court. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, like, he's like, oh, crap. Not only am I, do I realize I'm guilty, but like, I, I, I need to go. I need to run. I need to flee or, you know, or, you know, like that, that's certainly a valid, valid thing. Why he chose to do this at this time. I also think it could have been that he discovered that he didn't like popcorn. Well, yeah, that's awesome. I'm going to be sick. Oh, <laughs> uh, boy. So. Got to get some Cracker Jacks. Get this taste out of my mouth. I need the caramel. <laughs> we come back to the parking lot and a cop is there. He's talking to Reed and Hotch. And uh, apparently there was a law clerk out there and Matloff used the gun to carjack her. Interesting note. He didn't kidnap her or anything. She was a brunette young lady. You know, she seemed to be fine. I mean, obviously a little frazzled, but. Oh, and, and her they said her wrist was was hurt or something because he rested her out of the car. But again, like he's not trying to hurt people. It's it's means to a, an end that he, you know, obviously he's he's on the run for his life at this point. So, yeah. So uh, Hotch is talking to the cop and he lets them know that they did put out an APB and uh, Hotch mentions, don't forget all the service roads because this guy knows all the service roads because of his, you know, forest job, etc. And uh, the cop asks Reed if he knows where this guy is headed. And Reed says, well, that all depends on who he is. <laughs> that was a funny way to put that. Thanks, Reed. <laughs> but yes, in this case, it's like, well, is 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 he... Is he a killer who has just gotten his memories back and is bound for kill killing again? Or is he a man who got his memories back and realizes he's a killer, but is the man? Right. <laughs> and so Hotch sees the defense lawyer walking in the parking lot and Hotch kind of comes over and accosts him, I would say, see if he knows where this guy is. And the lawyer doesn't seem to know anything. And Reed has to stop Hotch from messing with this guy more because you can tell Hotch kind of wants to go at this guy, maybe for his uh, treatment in the court. But uh, yeah, I, I, I do wish there was a way where we could, <laughs> that, that, that uh, in the middle of this, we could have seen like what was on his Blackberry, like that he had lost another yeah. race. <laughs> I thought that would have been funny. Um, <laughs> Not that I watch the show for the ha-has, but I do like a little ha-ha. <laughs> it's, it's good to have a ha-ha. So, yeah, Hot Reed stops him from messing with the lawyer. And uh, so the lawyer takes off and Hotch tells Reed uh, to go check out the jail cell and see if there's any clue that uh, can tell them where this Matloff is, is headed. And then Hotch calls the rest of the team at the office and he says, assuming that this guy's memory is coming back, where is he headed? And Morgan thinks uh, maybe it's his birth mother. But Hotch says, well, that's not an option because we have her. and. Rossi says, you know, with no other choice, he's either going to uh, make a run for it or he's going to go on a spree. And this is making Prentice wonder if they did this by making him remember what he is. And Rossi is like, no, no, no. He is who he is. It has nothing to do with us. 
he kind of was just poo-pooing her. But I was like, that's an interesting philosophical <laughs> thought, uh, Prentice. Well, again, it's it's the same debate they had before. I mean, look, if this if this entire episode <laughs> had ended with with Emily listening to Susie and the Banshees on, on her headphones, <laughs> that would have been a nice little button. It's not, but, you know, it would have – because I think and the reason they, they think they didn't do that because that answers the question. <laughs> like, yeah, we are who we are. Right. But uh, – or are we? Like, I don't know. I, 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 it would have been a nice little button. Maybe they couldn't get the right. Yes. <laughs> so then we uh, have Hotch hanging up the phone, and then we cut over to Reed over at Matt Loft's jail cell, and he's searching the place, turning over everything, and uh, finally he finds the well-hidden legal pad <laughs> right mean, under his mattress. He's, he's going over... <laughs> He's going over everything in the cell. <laughs> it's a prison cell. Yeah. <laughs> He's been in the prison cell for what a couple of weeks at this point, maybe. Yes. Uh, yeah. Like you look under the mattress, and that's pretty much everywhere he can hide something. <laughs> there's, there's no, there's no Rita Hayworth poster and a small little. <laughs> that's it. Like maybe he's got maybe he's got two, two, two books in there. <laughs> And the mattress. And yeah. the first thing you do is pillow and mattress. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway. But apparently Reed, it's, Reed is the last thing he looks at. <laughs> yes. So he does find uh, the legal pad. I'm assuming, I mean, they didn't get into it too much, but I'm assuming this was the writing materials he had asked the guard for before. And I'm assuming he asked for it because he was having these memories. And so he wanted to start writing them down. That was my Assumption based on what we've seen. I think that's a good assumption, yeah. Uh, Reed starts looking at the uh, paperwork here. Reed sees that there's a drawing of the waterfall that we've seen plenty of times now. And uh, so Reed calls Hotch and says, oh, I think I know where he's going. I think I know. I think I've got it now. <laughs> we cut to see Matloff walking in the area of the waterfall, which is right behind him. And he's wearing a suit now, so he's still in his suit. He never switched over. Well, no, no, probably <laughs> when you're trying to escape from the law, you don't want to put on the orange jumpsuit, Kintah. Uh, yeah, I just, you know. <laughs> Might be a giveaway. <laughs> just, you know, I, I'm a slave to routine, I guess. But anyway, um, <laughs> yes. Oh, that would have been damn funny. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's a... Uh, Walking in this in the forest area, looking around, and then we see him flash back. It's himself talking to a young brunette woman in a jogging suit. He's giving her some directions, and when she turns around to go off to follow them, he comes up behind her, wraps his belt around her neck, pulls her to the ground, starts to strangle her, and she looks at him and says, please. And we come back to him now. Here in the present, we see that there's a young brunette jogger running toward him. So he goes and does the classic, let me hide behind this tree and I'll, <laughs> I'll never be seen. <laughs> he hides behind a tree and the jogger passes and then he follows after her. We cut to the parking lot of the park and the cops are now there and Reed and Hatch are there. And Reed is showing a, the cop a picture of the waterfall. And so they figure out where that is. Hatch says that's where they have to go. And so we see them walking and very. Uh, can, can I just can I, can I poke in right yeah. here for one second? OK, why does Reed need, need help is my question, because Reed, again, 
has a photographic memory, and he's been here. We know he's been here. We saw the flashback for four years ago. He'd know exactly where that waterfall yep. is. Very good point. Just saying. Don't make him have the perfect memory only when you need it. <laughs> yeah, remember that he has a me- <laughs> Just because you didn't remember, he remember. He would remember. <laughs> uh, just, just gargle, gargle, fargle, margle. <laughs> and instead of some big, you know, action set piece here, they just walk up on Matloff sitting in the grass, basically. I mean, they're probably, I don't know, 50 or 100 yards behind where he is when, when they spot him sitting there. And uh, I'm only figuring that that far because Hotch needs to look at them with using some binoculars that somebody hands him. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Hotch sees brunette hair. So clearly Matloff has a woman in his arms. And he also notices that whoever this woman is, she's not moving. So uh, rather than them go in and do anything crazy, Hotch decides he's going to move in on them. He tells the cop to get his shooters high and wide, and then he slowly walks towards Brian. We see Brian look at the girls and at the girl in his arm, and she's saying, please, like the other girls. And Hotch says, Brian, show, show me your hands. And he's walking up on him. And then we finally get a camera angle from in front of Brian. And the girl that we thought was a live girl in his arms is a very much dead girl, <laughs> AJ. I'm talking decaying corpse level of dead. Yeah, and, and and I'm fine with this. A lot of times when they do this kind of ho, 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 it's not what you think. It's, 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 a, it's a trick. But because we know that Brian has been dealing with not being sure what's a memory or whether it's real or not, I, I, I'm okay with this one, especially since they showed us very quickly. Yeah. So Hotch says, look, who is she? Brian says, yeah, she was my first. And as soon as I got to this park and my, my feet hit the ground, I knew right where to go to find her. And he's crying. And he says, you know what? I killed them. He admits to killing them. And Hot says, you remember now? And he says, I remember every moment, every detail. I remember it all, but it's still not real to me. It's like the memories belong to someone else. And Hot says, well, maybe they do but you still have to pay for what you've done. Brian is holding the gun to his head and he's like, if I'm going to be put to death, I might as well die right here. And Hotch says, hey, 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 look, the court may show you some kind of mercy, but you've got to earn it. If you believe you're a different person, prove it, do the right thing here and now. And Brian is thinking about it. He nods his head. He sort of tosses the gun back toward Hotch and they move in on him. We cut to a little bit later in Cece's office and Reed and Hotch are there and they're getting their stuff together and Cece hangs up her phone and she lets them know that Matloff is pleading out. Hotch congratulates her and she says, yes, I couldn't have done it without you. She's offering to take them out for drinks. I think she's mainly offering to take Hotch out, but, you know, since Reed is there too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We don't even see Reed until after the offer. Yeah. (laughs) But Hotch is like, we got a long drive. We got to get going. And she uh, says, okay. She understands. And she tells them to lock up when they leave. And she, she takes off. And I, I I feel like I saw a little little bit of chemistry there, AJ. 
I don't know. Is CC going to be Hotch's new love interest? Will we ever see her again? Oh, are you thinking that? Are you think that Hotch, uh, after talking to Rossi last week and realizing that uh, there's life after divorce, that he's going to feel his oats a little? I'm think? thinking that might be the case. Um, but I, I also mm-hmm. know this show. Like we meet CC and she seems interesting, so this show will probably never have her on again, <laughs> based on my experience. But we'll. I don't know. That was just the. I got a little vibe between them. That's all I'm saying. Hey, hey, that, 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 it's all good. All good. Uh, at least certainly from her side. And maybe a little bit from him, too. Maybe a little. So Reed tells Hotch about Corbett bringing a, a gun to the courthouse. And Hotch asks Reed if he thinks he was serious about using it. And Reed does think so. He's like, you know, he was looking for closure. And I don't really reckon he's going to get it. People's emotional lives aren't linear like that. To say a killer's conviction can suddenly bring a man to peace, I just don't think it's possible. Hotch says, well, he guesses that he has to try. And when it comes down to it, what choice does he have? And Reed looks thoughtful. We then cut to Reed knocking on Corbett's door. Corbett answers and Reed lets him know that Matloff has changed his plea to guilty. He's going to get life without parole. Corbett is like, yeah, you didn't have to come here to tell me that. And Reed says, well, he also came to return this and hands him the watch. He mentions he was able to get it released from evidence, um, which I'm glad he said because I was about to say, how did you just get that watch, Reed? So I'm glad they covered that. The case is closed and he was with the DA. So, yeah, it, it does make sense, actually. <laughs> Corbett looks at it. He lets them lets Reed know that it once belonged to Darcy's grandmother, Darcy and her were very close. And Reed says, well, he noticed the inscription on the back. Glory in a flower? He's not familiar with that. And Corbett says, yeah, it's Wordsworth. Um, They really both loved his poetry. And then he starts, I thought a very clever way. I thought he was going to be the only one to say it. I thought he was going to get to say the quote uh, in the episode, which he kind of does. It says, What though the radiance that was once so bright be now forever taken from my sight, though nothing can bring back, and he's tearing up, and it's very good little read here. (laughs) Not little read, uh, a (laughs) line read. Anyway. Yes. yes. I can read! (laughs) Criminal minds, babies. (laughs) I'm in the bucket! So he he just thanks Reed. He's too choked up to finish the quote. But as Reed is heading back to the car, he'll des- he decides he'll finish the quote in a voiceover. It says, Though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass, of glory in the flower, we will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind. And he and Hotch drive away, and that's the end of the episode. And see, here is where the whole Reed memory thing works perfectly, because, of course, Reed is lying when he says, I don't know that quote. He wants Corbett to recite the quote and think about the quote and remember the quote, because he knows it's going to provide him closure and he knows it's going to have that emotional impact. So by pretending to not know, he gets Corbett to say it, because, of course, Reed knows 
uh, <laughs> and is able to recite it from memory two seconds later, uh, albeit in voiceover form. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think that was a very nice touch to, to do that. And I, I guess today I learned where the, the phrase splendor in the grass, as in the movie, I, I guess I'm assuming that that yes. came from this poem. Of course. I did yes. not know that, so I learned something. Wordsworth new. trademark, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, 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 again, I think uh, a nice episode. I, I like I liked a lot of the debate going on in it. Uh, you know, it's not your typical case, but it, 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 I give it a thumbs up. All right. I did, too. I enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, I actually didn't have many. I didn't find myself saying, come on as much as I usually do <laughs> in an episode of Criminal Minds. You know, there are a few little spots here and there, but it was... Uh... Yeah, I will say, I will say, from a long view, knowing where the show goes years down the line, and I have a lot of problems with this episode in retrospect, but as we're watching it, I don't have many problems with this okay. episode. <laughs> so I guess we should take out our barometer, uh, folks. This is what we like to do at the end of each episode and uh, figure out if we think the team has won the episode, so to speak. Uh, AJ, how do you think we uh, did on the barometer this, this week? Well, you know, we're going to decide win or lose by if they've solved the case and there's no case. Like we knew who the unsub was. Yep. Put him on trial. He was already caught. Um, yes, he escapes, but that wasn't their fault. And they just picked him up. Basically, I, this is this is a no decision. Like there's, there was nothing for them to do here in terms of solving a case. Um, yes, they tracked down his mom, but I don't know. It, like like Emily said, like you know, was it our fault? We gave him the memories. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so they created their own problem and solved it. But it, it's a push. It is a push this week. If uh, if it were I doing the grades, I would actually give them a win just for winning in the sense of defending profiling in court. I, 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 I thought <laughs> yeah, that was, but that's not what this, that's not that's not what the barometer is. I, I understand. Now. <laughs> yes, I know. But uh, I enjoyed yeah. that so much. That's uh, I felt like that was a, a a moral victory at least a moral victory. Oh sure, sure. They, well, look, they, they had a big inning running up the score on <laughs> on the defensive end, no doubt. But he was not the enemy. <laughs> true, true. So I guess that leaves us with one thing, AJ, or should I say, three things, three questions. We like to do this at the uh, end of the episode, also, folks. Uh, three little trivia type questions inspired by the show we just watched. So AJ. Why don't you destroy me as you do each and every week? <laughs> oh no! Come on, it's, 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 this might be this might be a, a, a layup week for you. I don't know. Um, <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Question number one. Let's talk about our uh, forgetful unsub, uh, who was played by Eric Lang. Uh, this uh, Eric Eric played a character named Stuart on what show? where he had a very important task that he had to routinely do. Forgetting was not an option for this character. I felt like I recognized him, but I'm trying to think of where I recognized him from. Oh, oh, 
I think no. I know this is is uh, I don't remember the name Stuart, but was this was he on Lost? The guy that had to push the button is that Stuart Radzinski? Radzinski was one of the yeah. yes Radzinski. He was one of the guys who had to hit the button every one hundred and eight. Every one hundred and eight, man. Tick 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 tick. Hit the button. Tick tick the tick, button. Tick, <laughs> the button. Yep. <laughs> Uh, absolutely, ah. absolutely. He actually, interestingly enough, he is already dead when the series starts, having shot himself because he didn't want to do it anymore. Okay, yeah. Um, but because we then go back into the 70s, we, we pick up his entire life story <laughs> and how he ends up in the hatch, yes. Okay. So, good job, one for one. Yes, Rydzinski from Lost. I, you know, it's funny how we just sort of have these different themes that just keep coming back like or different uh areas that happen to hit a pop culture uh shining spot for us as well but anyway yeah and, and i will say there there seems to be like runs of episodes with characters who are know each other from other projects and stuff so that's always a fun thing too like we've had we've had our uh our Dawson's Creek right. run. <laughs> um, we're always going to have our 90210. By the way, you predicted eight 90210 regulars appearing on the show, and uh, Mr. Eckhouse makes three. So yeah. three and counting. Tick, tick, tick. Uh, we'll see where we end up on that. I mean, we only have one episode plus 12 more seasons to go. <laughs> uh, question two. Yeah. <laughs> question two. All right. On what show? Did Amy Carlson, who took us step-by-step through today's legal proceedings as our DACC, play the wife of a cop for 155 episodes before her character died in a helicopter crash? Hmm. Uh, You said step-by-step. I did. I'm wondering if that is a clue. Not to step by step, because that would be <laughs> way too obvious. And it didn't seem like the kind of show that would have cops and, and helicopter crashes and <laughs> whatnot. No, if you wanted Suzanne Summers <laughs> as a cop, that's she's the sheriff. Uh, yes. Uh, um, I wonder how far back this, this actress goes, because, no, I don't think she's old enough. I was thinking maybe... Instead of Suzanne Summers, we were going to go to Patrick Duffy and go way back to Dallas or go way back to the man from Atlantis. <laughs> but I don't think that's it. Um, I think I just got to pick a random cop show and go with it. That that lasted a long time. All right. I'm just going to say third watch. We've had people on from Third Watch before. That's not a sure. I I have to say it's very perceptive of you to hear step by step and realize yes, I was giving you a clue. Step by step. Step one, have lots of fun. Step two, you know what to do. Yes, this is Donnie Wahlberg's wife. On Blue Bloods. Oh. Blue Bloods was a show. One of those. I I, I, I think of Blue Bloods like I think of According to Jim. That Wait, that's still on? <laughs> should, should I ever watch that? Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
Yeah, um, like Supernatural, he just doesn't know how to die. Um, yes, Donnie Wahlberg, that was our step-by-step. You were so close to sussing out my clue. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, but good good job, good job. Even though you failed, you, you succeeded uh, in my estimation. Thanks, I guess. <laughs> yes, all right, let's go. Question three. You know what it is, my favorite question of each and every one of our felonious pundits episodes, where I ask you the same question every time. What will the plot of our next episode be? That will be Criminal Minds, season three, episode 20, the season finale, entitled Lo-Fi, L-O hyphen F-I. Lo-fi. Is it A, we're off to New Mexico when a strange series of radio transmissions has a local sheriff convinced that a serial killer is actually an alien? Is it B, we're off to the Big Apple when a series of random shootings makes the city that never sleeps even more paranoid than usual. Is it C? We're off to St. Louis, where a blackout forces the BAU team to figure out the identity of a murderer old school and without the help of a certain team member's clickety-clacking. Or is it D? We're off to the Windy City, when a series of robberies all performed by the same quartet of masked burglars, has the second city having second thoughts about going outside. Lo-Fi is going to see us in the great Midwestern state of Missouri. We're going to be going with choice C, off to St. Louis, and uh, there's a blackout, and... We've got to use these old techniques, old school style of crime solving techniques. And in fact, we cannot even contact Garcia for a little bit of clickety clacketing. But we're going to bring Garcia along anyway to, you know, fulfill contractual obligations. Sure, 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 sure. I mean, you did hear just earlier this episode, Rossi's talking about how much he hates technology and. How he wishes he could do these things old school. Absolutely. Um, You're absolutely right. There's going to be some issues with cell phones and technology, perhaps. Uh, Certainly uh, communication systems. Maybe we'll even bring Garcia along. When we go to the Big Apple for a series of random shootings that makes the city that never sleeps even more paranoid than usual. I know it's not worth it saying at this point, but that was my other choice. (laughs) Season finale, major cities, big, big budget. Yeah. Season finale. Ah, yes. All right. Yes, 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 yes. The Big Apple, it it shall be. And uh, yeah, we're going to... We're going to just, uh, folks, we're going to end season three on a huge cliffhanger. So brace yourselves for that, my friend. I cannot wait.
I am so excited for Lo-Fi. Folks, hey, <laughs> thank you so much for coming and listening. Or I guess it didn't. Anyway, uh, thank you so much for listening to our show. <laughs> uh, uh, I uh, am glad to have you here. And uh, we hope you had a great time. Please be sure to subscribe to rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to spread the word and let your friends know about us. You can also write to us at feloniouspundits at gmail.com or follow our Twitter account at podcast underscore pundits. For AJ Mass, this is Kintad Svensgaard saying goodbye and keep profiling. Wheels up. I am a blank slate. Therefore, I can create anything I want. Toby Maguire.